Welcome to the fourth episode of the Code French podcast. My name is Stephen French, and this week we'll be talking to film director John Moore. We talk about the future of Netflix, the price of your personal data, the future of cinema, and some maybe controversial things along the way. If you are easily offended, don't tune in. If you don't like swearing, also don't tune in. technology companies usurp terminology from other fields of human endeavor, such as medicine. Uh, you know, it talks about your health check, your system health check. I mean, who are they to say things like that? I've also found it very interesting that there's only two enterprises in human nature that refer to their clients as users, and that drug drug dealers and social media companies. Isn't that funny? But it's interesting. I, I just read this morning that, that Facebook are taking out these full-page ads complaining about how Apple are going to use their new software that will basically cripple yeah. their mining of the user's data. So there's a little tension in the air there with those guys. There should be tension in the air. The game should be up. The simple value, the simple reality today is that your data is of commercial value and is therefore exploitable. And I'm looking forward, I hope it's a Scandinavian country or maybe Germany actually makes the move to public data banks where you have a, a data account like a bank account and you can lend your data, you can rent your data or you can keep your data yourself. But companies don't don't get to just simply exploit your data for free. It's a, it was quite a cute little concept 15 years ago. Oh, don't mind us. We're just taking all this silly technical data that nobody really has any use for. That game is up. That game is up. Is there any benefit that you've had with it? It was very useful. And that's a, a being of an age where I existed in the world without the Internet. Because I have a, a point of reference. Of course, what's truly terrifying about all this is that soon we'll all be dead and there'll be nobody with a point of reference uh, on the other side of the, you know, information superhighway revolution. So as I, I, I'm constantly grateful for that, not least because you can use it as some sort of you know, defense, some sort of inoculation against the constant frustration of thinking that your life is so precariously connected by these whimsical companies. You know, the, the sense of the sense of genuine terror and fear we felt there five minutes ago because we couldn't get this connection to work. I mean, all right, this may be a trivial endeavor for us, but for people working, trying to earn a living, I think that constant sense of stress and fear, will these boxes work? Because it's it's so beyond our ability to affect in any way. I think cumulatively the effect of that is quite dangerous on people. It's sort of like going to work with a with a really bad boss every day, and you don't know, you know, they've got a volatile temper, and they're going to explode at you any minute. That 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 is what it's like working 
in the Zoom workplace nowadays. It's, it's oh my God, will Zoom allow me to complete my work today? Do you feel though that the genie will ever get back in the box of this new way that is working? Yes, I do. Yes, I do, Stephen, because we used to send kids down coal mines and up chimneys. Today's an, an interesting day in, in UK law. There was a young girl at uh, coroner's court for the first time, as far as I know, in UK, possibly even European legal history. The cause of death on this young girl's death certificate was air pollution. She was an asthmatic girl, God love her, and she had repeated attacks and she died some years ago. And her mother said, what killed my child was living in this city. And the UK coroner agreed with her. So to answer your question, yes, we can. I don't think the genie is fully out of the bottle. I think we were all wowed by the magic beans for quite a while there. And then the fire water and then the guns. And soon, though, we'll start saying this isn't worth it. This isn't worth what we're giving for it. Or we want, we want something better in exchange. This, that, that's what it feels like here in Los Angeles. It feels like there's a certain kind of like huge tension between all these you know, businesses that are essentially closed. I think there's an interesting sort of Venn diagram to be drawn between some of the more uh, progressive social movements that have happened in the past year, two years, 18 months, whatever, and the fact that a lot of these Silicon Valley companies are run by a certain type of white male geek, with, with sort of who, all of whom seem to score very low on the emotional empathy index. Um, you know, so here we have the masters of our destiny, men who I personally suspect don't quite understand what's going on or, or what the problem is, man. Um, so I, th I think that's very interesting. Um, I look forward to there being some big female tech entrepreneurs and some black tech entrepreneurs. And I really wish Black Lives Matter at all would turn their attention and turn their formidable gaze towards Silicon Valley. Um, in instead of beating up on their town's mayors and in some cases unnecessarily on their town's police forces, have a look over your sh have a look over your shoulder, guys, and ask yourself why isn't your message getting through? Why isn't there uh, better results, more far-reaching results? You know, I, it's quite shocking to me. The impact of Black Lives Matter this year has been somewhat less than the impact of civil rights efforts in 1968, 52 odd years ago, when we we supposedly live in the world where you know a message can get around the world in the blink of an eye or the click of a mouse. I don't know, man. I, I, I am definitely being an agent provocateur. I'm definitely trying to stir the shit. And that's the case but, uh, with how the media handled the election. It was pretty mm -hmm. shocking from this side where, you know, certain kind of gates of information were just like not, not passing through the gate holders. You know what I mean? It was like quite in, insane at one point. Yeah, I think it was, in, it, it was disturbing, not least because of the reality distortion field that uh, tends to form around those who think they're right about all of this stuff. Yes, I mean Joe Biden voters, or rather Kamala Harris voters. Yes, I do mean people who dislike Trump intensely. I think they all um, have a little bit of reality distortion going on. And I think the most significant number to come out of 2020 isn't the R number, it isn't the infection rate, it isn't the total number of cases, it isn't the total number of deaths. The most significant number 
to emerge from 2020 was the approximately 71 million people who thought that Donald Trump was doing an excellent job for their country and they'd like to see him continue to do it. But and, I, and I'm quite alarmed, certainly in the media on this side of the Atlantic, how it's all been brushed under the carpet. It's a done deal. I'm not saying his legal challenges were right. I'm not saying him and his Looney Tunes cabinet had any right to occupy uh, the, the, the White House. But anyone who knows anything about history knows that you can't ignore an electoral mandate like that for long without there being some serious consequences. Some of the information, well, you know, sometimes they just wouldn't even kind of like actually show a speech from the other side, mm -hmm. you know, which that, that, that's almost like a dream that we're in a different world now. Yeah, it's insidious. It's, 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 it's cruel. It's unnecessary. It's a decision. These are decisions made in boardrooms by company directors deciding that the market is fractured beyond truth. The, there is now a market for your truth. There used to be a market for truth, and we used to call it press freedoms and all that good stuff. There's now a fractured market for truth. None of this is new. Everything I'm saying is has a four-year-old staleness to it. We all know that. But I do think that the democratic side of the equation in 2020 did bring it to a new scale of... They put a lot of effort in, Steve. They put a lot of effort into to, to, to getting it over the line. We met through filmmaking, obviously, many years ago in Slovakia, all those years ago, on your first film, Behind Enemy Lines. I've just noticed recently that our discussions really are more kind of like going down the political road. I always remember this time back in, back in Europe when I was growing up, that there would be this wonderful tradition of these like political BBC Two late night movies, Elephant, you know, that would show certain mm -hmm. sides of the troubles from Northern Ireland. That mm -hmm. I would always, you know, you would see it late on a Tuesday night on a wet Wednesday afternoon. You know what I mean? That kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Is that kind of cinema dying out, and or, or were you were you a fan of that? I don't think it's dying out. If anything, it's getting stronger but less valuable. Uh, let me explain the contradiction. I think, like most things now. People have decided to adopt certain hobbies of social justice. And I mean that to be as insulting as I hope it is. A lot of people have created their hobby. When I was a kid, making model airplanes was a hobby, or going to a football match was a hobby, or playing snooker was a hobby. Politics is now a hobby. We're in a postmodern era where it's also ironic and fun and... Uh, 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 you know, I, I, I've lost count of the number of people I've seen in magazines this year who define their job as activist. I've lost track of the number of Instagram posters who proudly proclaim the same, the similar job title. Cinema has no place anymore in the motivation of people. None. It is about to enter a very, 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 very dirty, stale, brown period of being nothing more, nothing more than something to burnish your particular credentials in the particular field that you feel active in. So when you talk about the cinema of 30 or 40 years ago, no, I think there's nothing like it in terms of effect on the horizon. I think there'll be a lot more volume. And people in groups will watch their chosen films, much like they do with their news, much like they do with their Twitter feed, much like they do with their Instagram feed. 
And again, you'll see fracturing of the market. Uh, and, and that's what companies will do. Apple will make a certain kind of movie. Amazon will make a certain kind of movie. Netflix will make a certain kind of movie. Netflix will be greedy, of course. They'll want everyone and they'll think that all their categories um, uh, mean that they have a broad appeal. Little do Netflix know that they've become the hello magazine of uh, online entertainment streamers. They really have. They've got a shiny picture of a celebrity on the cover and fuck all else uh, in the pages in between. Dear Mr. Chris Nolan wasn't too impressed with HBO Max. Obviously, that he, he's not a no, subscriber. No, he's not. I mean, I'll, I'll wrap up my point about political uh, cinema, if you like, very quickly by saying I think it's gone. I think it's history. I think what political cinema, if I may, Pete or Steve, what political cinema used to be was a, people, a bunch of people who didn't know much but wanted to find out something. So they wouldn't make presumptive movies. They would make inquisitive movies. What I see now, or what I expect to see, are presumptive movies. People who think they know everything, they know how they want the movie to be, they know where they want it to play, and they know to whom they want to play. For example, Mank, uh, Netflix's latest uh, hood ornament, Mank, was very much the kind of movie I'm talking about. There's no sense of discovery there's no sense of education in these movies so i think political cinema is dead and it's dressed up in the corpse of segment pandering segment pandering we we discussed mank a little bit last time we had a little chat and mm -hmm. you know I, I i personally kind of just enjoyed it thoroughly as as did i oldman cinematography you know beautiful sound design insane i i wonder you know because we talked about this idea that wonderful directors are getting to make very niche products now so it's almost like an art cinema is netflix is there an art cinema inside there somewhere i couldn't dis i couldn't i couldn't disagree more and i feel nauseous i feel nauseous about this idea Let's call it what it is. Netflix is the hello magazine of online streamers. And a lot of these directors are being paid truckloads of money. And they're packaging it as, well, we're making personal movies. We're making the movies we want to make. Now, let me ask you something, Stephen. Did Mr. Fincher, for example, have trouble getting his movies financed in the past 20 years? I don't think so. I think Mr. Fi Mr. Fincher et al., Mr. Scorsese included, have been making exactly the kinds of movies they want to make. So this idea that they migrate from the traditional major studios to Netflix because Netflix will somehow now suddenly give them to room to make the movies, quote, they really want to make, is both insulting, ironic, and very stupid. And it makes, it makes mugs out of their fan base for the past 20 years because apparently Maybe David Fincher didn't want to make Seven, or he didn't want to make Benjamin Button, or he did. apparently now he's making the movies he wants to make. Who's next? They got Marty, they got Fincher. No doubt Chris Nolan's excoriating letter about HBO Max will be nothing but an entree into the stable at Netflix. I can imagine the phone calls all, already. Oh, oh, Christopher, I know... HBO and Warners have been so nasty to you. Come on over here to Netflix. The water's lovely and warm. Where you can make whatever you want. And don't worry, we'll find a way to make it relevant and we'll put it out there and you'll get to sit in your castle. How ironic that Mr. Fincher should choose to make a movie about a, a cut-off, rich, old, white man who's got no idea what's going on in the world. Chris Nolan, this, you know, the, the week before that, it was you know Warners deciding to kind of just release everything this Christmas, which is like, you know, 
quite monumental shift. Like, mm -hmm. this is, we're not coming back from that, are we? But like, once, it, once we're going down that road, is it a fundamental change in the way cinema is essentially consumed from now on? To quote, I can't remember who the quote is, it might even be Oscar Wilde, rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. We've seen, uh, we've seen the pronouncement of the death of theatrical cinema ever since the invention of television in the 50s or the widespread adoption of television in the 1950s, and it has been proven to be anything but true. The cinema theatrical model generates $46 billion a year. I don't know who's walking away from that money immediately. Um, I think there's something more sinister going on, and that is that the tech companies that are that are that are starting to uh, eat up, gobble up in a gluttonous fashion. They're trying to they're, they're they're gorging themselves on studios and filmmakers, and and that that most disgusting of term, content producers. They're gorging themselves on that, not particularly to challenge the distribution model. But you got to step back and see something a whole lot bigger. They're 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 taking that, that's nothing but a brick in the wall that they'd like to build around their customer base. In the future, there will be people who are Amazonians and there'll be people who are Appalachian, and their entire universe will be based on an operating system, a, a living system. And believe me, your entertainment is only part of that. So I I I I think the rumors of theatrical cinema's death are greatly exaggerated, but I do think there's a very dangerous and avaricious appetite out there amongst tech companies to swallow up both the, the creators of the content, the studios and filmmakers, and to kill off any distribution mechanism. I don't think tech companies are doing this because they think there's no future in cinema. I think they're doing it in theatrical distribution. I think they're doing it in order to kill theatrical distribution. This is a very important difference. They're not turning their back on a tired market segment. They're killing that market segment because it is a competitive threat. Right. And obviously COVID is obviously making, you know, it's just sped up this potential thing, right? You know, almost, al almost comically so, almost comically so. I, I, I've seen a couple of movies this year, but of course, no, attendances are, are laughable. Um, you know, in fact, what m myself and a bunch of friends did, seven or eight of us, is we just hired a screen for 200 bucks and had effectively a private showing of what was a main, you know, a, a mainstream release at the time. No, it's been bad. It's been bad. I doubt we'll see much of the multiplexes survive. It, the only thing that might save the multiplexes, Steve, is that there's such a there's going to be such a crash in property markets that property will be so cheap, and it's hard to change this property's function from, uh, you know, multiplexes into office blocks or whatever, or, or apartments. You know, they're not really multi-use buildings. So you might see cinema cling on because their rents will fall because nobody else wants this garbage property. Uh, but no, it's been bad. It's bad all over the world. And in some ways, you know, I guess it's kind of crazy to be talking about cinema in this way, because obviously this, we're so low on the totem pole of importance, right? You know, it's not that big of a deal, ultimately. Like, there's other larger problems. If you say so. If you say so. Well, well, I'll tell you what I think, mate. Um, every day, every day, certainly in, in this part of Western Europe, we're beaten over the head every single day by what is euphemistically a euphemism for the organized drug distribution industry. They call it the hospitality industry. So every day we're beaten over the head by the fact that pubs and clubs and bars are, are on the rock. 
on the rocks financially. They are the wreck of the Hesperides, and they will not survive. And you know, you do you add up the sums, and it turns out that uh, mainstream theatrical cinema distribution in Europe is is as significant a business as other parts of the, of the hospitality industry. So I don't I don't know that we're that low on the totem pole. If people are prepared to say that pubs and clubs and bars are high on the totem pole, and like I say, we're being told that every day. What I think cinema suffers from is a little bit of the overlap or the spillover of the smeggy brown gilded water from live theatre. I think that is pretty low on the totem pole, and I think that's very interesting because you're seeing massively unfair, massively unbalanced approach to the funding of live theatre, you know, culture with a capital C-U-N. Oh, no, hang on, that's a different word. You're seeing massive funding of, you know, something apparently we can't live without. We're told that every night on on, on, on Radio 4 or NPR, we're told every night we just can't live without live theatre. Uh, I think we can. I think we will. And I and, and yes, I'll concede. Okay, make a movies is low on the totem pole if you say so. But watching a bunch of prats run around on stage shouting words that were written six or seven hundred years ago, I think should be equally as low. Yeah. Like, like, how are you imagining production around the world might change because of this? Well, look, California's been on its last legs from a production point of view for twenty years, ever since the move to Canada in the late nineties. Um, in terms, of, you know, so yeah, this could be very much a nail in the coffin. And don't worry, the Netflix and the Amazons and the Apples of the world will repackage their uh, shoddy, cheap labor practices as some sort of embrace of multicultural production platforms. When really, they'll just shoot a movie in Budapest because the carpenters are cheap. Um, but I mean, that's really the only reason that production has left California. California still boasts the finest technicians anywhere on the planet, but they're probably in their last generation because production has run away from there. They've tried to crush the unions. They've been successful. Of course, the Directors Guild and the Writers Guild will cling on because they've got big, swinging, dick, famous members, but if you're in a carpenter's union or a grips union or an electrician's union, good luck. Um, so yeah, I think there will be a continuing degradation of production in California unless there's some kind of fight back where, um, and you know, one of the great tragedies of, you know, I always thought Donald Trump was an incompetent execution of some competent ideas. The idea that um, American production should be something that's embraced with vigor and pride is probably too nasty and stinky and smelly and nationalistic for our friends in the Democratic Party to touch with a 40-foot barge pole. And, and, you know, over here, they're just keep on shooting, keep on shooting. COVID rules, COVID testing, you know, shoots getting shut down. I don't know if you've had a chance to to listen to Mr. Cruz's uh, burst on set about apparently his discomfort around COVID rules. Um, But, you know, I've, I've been on sets. I know people have been on sets. You've been on sets. There's some tokenistic efforts. There's some tokenistic efforts, and unfortunately, because it's film production, and you know that's very special, only done by very special people, as if um, it will be subject to intense and unfair uh, inspection. Right. Yeah. 
But the, the cost involved, you know, like, like some of the productions yeah. here, they're just like, they're up for a week, they're down for two weeks, they're up for a week. You know, could you imagine the actual, just the cost implications of running a show like that? It, surely, at some point, it's not going to make sense. Yeah, well, again, we can thank our friends on Wall Street for this one. You know, the problem isn't sanitizing the set or keeping social distancing or following the rules. The problem is that we can't get insurance. Uh, our, our friends on Wall Street um, who, you know, as conglomerates insure most movie productions around the world, it's a shockingly small, probably monopolistic number of insurers that handle this multi-billion dollar business are the ones that are holding up production because you know if a movie star drops out for a week because he has to isolate they're the ones that have to figure out now you know how to cover these problems so the problem that the, the log jam is in insurance companies it's not with uh, production companies or studios but what's the mood over there is it kind of like you know blind acceptance of these kind of ever-changing kind of rules and mandates or because over here there's a feeling of like hang on guys We've heard certain stories like this before, and it hasn't worked before. So, the, is is the kickback coming? Is, is there I, well, something in the air? Well, I would say in response to that is God bless America. Uh, you know, God bless America because America and Americans tend to take less shit than other people, and I, I'm glad and enthused, and I applaud any any efforts to question anything about what's going on. I'm not talking about nut jobs saying we won't wear a mask or the virus is going to put a microchip in your arm. Never mind that stuff. That's the headline stuff. Don't get distracted by the shiny, shiny objects that are easy to, to, to become paranoid about. The fact is there have been wide-reaching and subtle changes to civil liberties that are going unquestioned. And I think people in Western Europe are certainly lying down and taking it more than our American yeah. cousins. It's, it's an interesting kind of moment where obviously this next, the vaccine rollout is the, you know, will it be required for traveling or for working is the next kind of question, I guess. But is that... I think, is that I think undoubtedly, yes. Undoubtedly, yes. But listen, I have to have checks, ex chest x-rays and get a tuberculosis test in order to get a green card, in order to get into the United States. I mean, that's par for the course, certainly in plenty of, of contracts and in, and in um, travel, you know, and has been for decades. So I don't think it's a big deal to, to get a stamp in your passport to say that you've had a COVID test. The, the problem, like we saw after 9-11 with airport security, the problem is that these things become institutionalized and people then start to adapt their lives and their business models around them rather than questioning if they need to be kept in place for so long and so rigorous. That's actually something that Elon Musk is trying to fight back on, isn't it? The, his whole statement the other week about, you know, the regulations are for life almost, you know, and it's incredibly hard to remove them. Look, it's just another tawdry little business venture dressed up as some brave new world. When we put a man on the moon, it was a brave new world and we were doing brave new things in it. The fact that Elon Musk can hurl a rocket that was designed by generations of people working on low salaries for the good of the United States of America, the fact that he can now just roll in, capitalize on that, and not offer any even uh, a token indication that he's standing on the shoulders of giants is all rather distasteful. You know, I think it's rather distasteful that he flings his rockets into the air from 
the Kennedy Space Complex. I think it's rather distasteful that he his astronauts turn up driving his tatty little golf club cars, um, his Teslas or whatever. I think it's all rather silly that he puts 15-inch iPads inside his rocket ships. I'm not impressed in any way by the endeavors of these private companies because, you know, they're simply doing, they're sort of following a Thatcherite model where the state builds the infrastructure and they come in at the last five minutes, privatize it and squeeze every dollar out of it. As you know, I was like talking to Robert Shear recently and there's this kind of, you know, the idea of big government or small government. And I just wondered, like, what's the feeling back home? It, like... Are people enjoying being looked after by the government? Is there a sense? Is there some no. kind of uh, this feeling? What, what's what's the, what's going on there? No, I think that's no, a very I... interesting question. I think it's thanks to say, I don't know. Let me just go into the tall grass here. Uh, the destruction of the concept of socialism, the destruction of the practical left, which was brought about certainly in this part of the world by Mr. Anthony Blair at all when he hijacked ransacked, raped, and left for dead in the ditch, the idea of a left-wing government, that people are, uh, they, there's been such a gap between, you know, a time gap between now and what were genuinely previously socialist or left-leaning governments that people haven't quite understand understood what world they find themselves in now, which is why they find it difficult to politically locate the atmosphere at the moment. It's difficult to politically locate how we should be feeling about the level of government interference uh, or, or guidance or help. It's, 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 it's hard to politically locate what governments are doing in terms of financial support. It's hard to politically locate why massive companies are going to get bailouts, but people are going to be told to survive on very meager social welfare payments. Well, I don't think we quite know what is happening because it's been so long since there's been a, a truly left-leaning, uh, socialist, light type program of government anywhere in the Western world since arguably since the collapse of, of, of communism. So I think people are, 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 are discombobulated this year. They, they know they know that flavor. They know they know it from maybe their childhood, this idea of a government swooping in to help you. But they're not quite sure what it's from, where it's going, who's in charge of it, and when it stops. D discombobulated is such a beautiful word, John. And <laughs> like, I, I wondered, what are you imagining the next couple of years might involve? A massive anticlimax. That's what I'm imagining the next few years to involve. I remember having not similar discussions with you and others, but, uh, you know... It, <sighs> Discussions, wide-ranging discussions after 9-11, we thought the world would change. Now, the world did change, and it changed horribly for a lot of people, a lot of people. But I'm not sure that the systemic changes that we thought it would bring about happened. I see the same with COVID. You know, a lot of the early talk, I think, is just draining away now that this is, a quote, a unique opportunity to make real change and real difference. I rather fear it's all just going to slope back down the hill towards the same, you know, uh, uh, the usual unbalance or, 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 or poor balance between haves and have-nots. I, I, I don't know that COVID is going, I, you know, you remember Y2K, the millennium bug. Now, yes, of course, this is different. I'm not equating technical changes or 
or, or, or fears with, with, with health scares. But I just don't think that, you know, I think if there's a mass rollout of the vaccine, if that turns out to be as inequitable as I no doubt fear it will be, I think that may be grist to the mill for pushing for further social change. Because whatever about a pandemic dropping down from the heavens and a government shrugging its shoulders and truly saying there's not a lot we can do about this, should they fail to equitably roll out a vaccine, then that will be a political choice. But as you drive the streets of Los Angeles or recently I was in Texas, the homeless encampments are just growing. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, you drive down Melrose and it's like a tragic sight. No, it's not, and nor is it designed to bounce back that quickly, I, I, I don't think. You know, there, there's some far-reaching right-wing nutjob theories about how industry is going to embrace this moment uh, in a changeover to automation under the dark, sinister cover of, of, of resets and COVID restrictions and safety in the workplace, don't you know? That's why we had to hi- uh, fire 30 people and hire this robot we, that we made in China. Um, I think that COVID could be used for cover. You know, in the same way that security or national security or terrorism was used as a cover for the expunging of civil liberties all over the world. You know, you read the Financial Times, you'll hear industry leaders, whatever the hell that means, talking about how they need to embrace. Anytime you hear an industry talk about they need to embrace something is code for we figured out a way to make a shitload of money out of this. So I think I think you're going to see many industries take a hard look at their business models. Look, there's a couple of other factors in this. Don't forget, Joe Biden's economic program has yet to be revealed to us all. I'm sure it'll be very exciting when we do finally figure out what he wrote on the back of an envelope. Uh, You have Brexit, of course, occurring, which is really thrown a hand grenade into the, you know, Western uh, business model. And certainly as far as the UK is concerned, you've got the Chinese coming. If If I was a betting man and somebody asked me what the new world order would look like and where it's going to be a good place to live and a bad place to live uh, post-COVID, um, certainly post-Brexit. If I, w- <laughs> I wouldn't like to live in Hong Kong and I wouldn't like to live in Egypt. I think Hong Kong's going to be swallowed up whole by China with very little disruption or, or objection by Britain. And I think uh, as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, China will very firmly have their eyes fixed on the Suez Canal because, of course, it's very, very, very important. So I think you're going, you're going to see new business paradigms, yes. And I think you're going to see globalization 2.0, which is, uh, which is not going to be true to its title. Because what I, instead of globalization, I think you're going to see tribalization. I think you'll return to the idea of power blocks in the world, where we had you know the Warsaw Pact versus NATO, East versus West. I think you're going to see new alliances that will shape the business world. And anything that shapes the business world, of course, shapes your social world and your ability to live in that world. Movie making, the actual stories that will be produced in a year's time layout. Do you feel that there'll be some odd shift in the types of stories being made? Stephen, you know, we, we, we... Stephen let's, not, let's, let's not forget one very important thing. Nine out of 10 movies that any of us see on the screen have come into being because a bunch of idiots with a pretty low level of sophistication aiming for a lower common uh, denominator have decided to greenlight them and make them happen. People of astoundingly limited imaginations 
looking over their shoulder and trying to predict the next thing by seeing what just happened. These are the people who normally make nine out of 10 movies that you get to see in the theater, on Netflix, whatever. So forget them for a minute. When you talk about the types of movies that we're going to see, most of them are just going to be the same old, same old. Of course, they're going to try and hitch their wagon to something more special, like they're, they've got their finger on the pulse of what's happening with Black Lives Matter or whatever the hashtag cause du jour is. But thank God, there will always be genuinely independent-minded filmmakers who will stick up a middle finger to the world. So I don't think you can talk about the types of movies we're going to see. I think there are going to, there's going to be a great deluge of garbage, which is poorly considered, poorly thought out, and has no historical perspective. That, a lot of that is going to happen. A lot of that is happening. And I don't know that it's going to have all that much value 30, 40, 50 years from now. I mean, I could watch the Parallax, Alan Pakula's conspiratorial, paranoid thriller with Warren Beatty about stealing an election. I can watch that 40-odd years after it was made and feel it resonate, uh, uh, in fact, more powerfully maybe than it did originally. I don't see a lot of what's being made now having a lot a long shelf life. But like I said, thank God. There will be unpredictable sources out there who will knock it out of the park. They will knock it out of the park. And the minute they do, the first thing that will happen to them is giant streamers will try and romance them and bring them into the fold. What I'd like to see is an alternative, a couple of alternative streamers. I'd like to see Curzon Cinema or Artificial Eye or some of these genuinely uh, great movie-making companies decide, look, here's a stream for you. And there are, it is happening. It is. But in the same way as McDonald's took over the movie business, believe me, Netflix has taken over the industry. What about you, per, per being in lockdown and being creative? How, how are you dealing with Well, let me be clear. I like the pandemic because it gives me somewhere to hide my failure. I think it's great saying that, I'm. oh, I'm not making a movie because, you know, the pandemic. The, 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 the truth is I'm not making a movie because I'm a 51-year-old white man and people don't have a lot of use for me right now. They may. They may change their mind. Things may settle down or change or people may decide that I, I'm of some use. But right now I am of no use and I am not alone. And I think that's okay. I think I had my turn. I think I had my go. I'm certainly not clinging on. I'm I'm at some remove from the movie business nowadays, so it's kind of fun to watch what's happening and to be able to just throw hand grenades at it because I don't really have any skin in the game anymore. From a create from a creative point of view, I, I've certainly considered this year as a year that I woke up. I, I I certainly think it's been a very useful year in terms of thinking about what kind of movies I actually want to spend my time. And we all know it takes years and years, but I want to spend my time making. Um, so, you know, it hasn't been all bad from that point of view. I certainly feel like um, I woke the fuck up this year. Uh, it was bizarre that um, I was reading about, because it was John Goddard's birthday the day, and he, you know, he said, he was saying that, it's, he actually said something that you said many years ago in the documentary about, how directing is one of the few roles where you are only doing it occasionally. You're not always mm -hmm. on as a director. And that's mm -hmm. a tricky thing that doesn't not necessarily get discussed that much. It doesn't. It doesn't because there's a stigma associated to it, you know, if you're not churning them out. And let's face it, but let's face it, 
a disproportionate number of films are made by a very small number of people. It reminds me of, uh, you know, the sort of uh, Brit art uh, movement of the 90s where you just had Tracy Emin and Damien Hirst and one or two others and they were making all the running. Um, similarly, it is, so there's a stigma to not working, but it's actually quite valuable. If you can afford to do it, you should step away. You should be, you should disinvite yourself from the party for a few years. Think of something, write something, and then see if you've got the muscle to get back in. And if you don't have the muscle to get back in, that means you're done and you should uh, die with a little dignity. Because you're, you've always been a strong proponent of the kind of, you know, the market decides, you know, if the script's good enough, yeah. if the project's good enough, you know, then it will get made. You know, I always admire that point of view, this, you know. Yeah, but that is an outdated view now, Stephen. That is a, that is a wholly useless, outdated and outmoded view. Because there is, there's no market anymore. There are market makers. The market used to be, you make a film, it opens on Friday. By Monday morning, you know whether it worked or it didn't work. There's no such thing anymore. Because what happens now is Netflix will make a movie. They'll push it. Every time you open your browser, you'll see it's there. All you have to do is click on it. You don't have to pay any money. You don't have to talk to your friends about it. You don't have to park your car and buy a soda. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to invest in it. So the idea of a critical benchmark is gone, and similarly the idea of a commercial benchmark is gone. So what I used to say about the power of the market in movie making is utterly without foundation now. It's useless. It's an old, tired, wrecked piece of advice, and you should throw it on the garbage heap. <laughs> but, you know, what, you know, I think it was in the letter, wasn't it, that Chris Nolan wrote? It was like this idea that, you know, he makes movies that you do need to see two or three times in a cinema. Oh, oh well, I, I, I'm sure somebody who paid 30 bucks to see one of his movies wouldn't take that too kindly. Can we see it two or three times for the same ticket? Well, that, that's that great line in Mank. Remember, one of the guys is like, you know, that's the best yeah. thing for cinema is the fact that you never actually own it. You think yeah, you're owning it, but you're not. Well, uh, I, the movie business used to be the only restaurant in the world where you paid for the meal before you ate it. Are we devaluing that world because there's just so much of it? You know, is, is, is it just overwhelming? Yeah, look, 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 our entire economy, whether we like it or not, insane, absurd, fantastical though it is, to believe our entire way of life and Western economy runs on the idea of scarcity. Our entire economic model, our entire financial model, our monetary model, our currency models run on a fantasy of scarcity. I have something, you don't have it, therefore it's valuable. There isn't a lot of gold in the world, therefore it's valuable. So scarcity, you know, people buy a Rolls Royce because you're not going to see one in 100 blocks. The idea of scarcity does still have potency. So, yes, there's a real danger that the market is flooded. There's too much stuff. And, of course, what the, the, the streamers think will rescue them is this idea, like I was talking about earlier, that you'll be a type. You'll be an Amazonian or you'll be an Appalachian and never the twain shall meet. And this is a very disturbing and very dangerous uh, idea if taken to its illogical uh, conclusion where basically uh, the, these companies are basically – Greenlighting the idea uh, of of ethnicity, technical ethnicity, or, or or digital ethnicity, 
I am this, I am not that, therefore if I am not you, then you are my enemy. Um, but that's all a rather fanciful. Yes, there's too much stuff out there. Yes, it has lost its value. And yes, we are much the poorer for not being able to sit in a dark room and watch the screen come to life in that darkened room, in a space that we share with other people, that we feel with other people, we listen to with other people, we take joy, sadness, boredom, uh, unimpressed, whatever it is. We are poorer for not having that. And so I feel Chris Nolan's pain, um, you know, on if you like, on a, on a technical level, that he meant his mo movies to look and sound and feel a certain way, and he's going to be denied that opportunity. And then final thoughts, John. What, what, like, maybe we should do some predictions, perhaps, for the love of some movies that you've seen recently or something, maybe. But uh, like, perhaps a little peek into the what could be next year. You know, Biden's hopefully going to kind of um, survive long enough to, to January to <laughs> see if he can make it up the steps. Um, and what, what is, what's your global thought? America is entering like this new phase. England is... Yeah. You know, I think, uh, given that predictions aren't worth the paper they're not written on, I'll, I'll take a swing at it, Steve. I think you're going to see a rather patronizing year of celebration. You're going to see the idea that, and it, it, it's actually something that I think made uh, Mr. Fincher's movie Mank uh, gloriously irrelevant the minute it, it surfaced. You're going to see movies that talk about what we can do, who we can be. In the same way as you saw a glut of movies from, say, 1973 to 1980, you know, post-Nixon, pre-Reagan, there was a lot of great dark conspiracy movies, Parallax View, The uh, 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 Three Days of the Condor, that kind of great stuff. I think you're going to see now an uptick in what I'll broadly call celebration movies. Now, these, these, this won't all be I'm, – I'm, I'm not saying we're returning to the 80s where it was action and rom-com nonsense – Believe me, I think these are movies that are going to take themselves very, very seriously, very, very seriously, and have very important campaigns about awareness. We must be aware of everything. Stephen, we must raise awareness. I, I was pretty sure we're pretty aware, but we must raise awareness. So you'll see a lot of movies helmed by innocents who are corrupted by giant studios and streaming platforms who will be wooed in meetings There'll be the, 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 these earnest white middle class executives will look into their eyes and earnestly plead with them to let them tell their story. So you're going to see a lot of celebratory personal movies, movies that think that entertaining people is a dirty word and movies that feel that they are of no value if they don't sort of have a credible hashtag associated with them. You're going to see a lot of that stuff, my friend. Hopefully, 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 as a balance, somebody's going to be smart enough to go, you know what, I just want to go to the movies on Friday night and have a blast. So I still think there's, there's room in the market for that. Go back to the early years of John Moore's life, like mm -hmm. learning about cinema. And like, who, who were some of the kind of homegrown filmmakers that you, you were kind of like interested in when you're, when you're a lad running around? Everything has to be couched in, in the, within the framework of we had no internet. Now, that, that might sound trite, but really what it meant was that the, the influences, the references, the people in your world, they had to be there, or you had to go and seek it out. 
it wasn't going to come to you. So your world was quite narrow. So in terms of influences, you know, I come from a small rock in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean called Ireland. God bless it. I love it. I die for it. And it's rich in history and it has an outsized ability to field literary giants, music giants. But it didn't quite field any film giants. Of course, there's filmmakers that have heritage here from, from say, John Ford, uh, 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 even David Lean, you know, so there were people that had associations with Ireland, but there weren't any giant Irish filmmaking figures until, you know, until very recently when uh, the likes of Neil Jordan and Jim Sheridan enjoyed very, very, very uh, purple patches. You know, they they had a great run uh, mid, to le- mid to late 90s. Um, so it's hard for me to hand on heart say that there are any homegrown references that, I, you know, it's not like, say, you grew up looking at Ken Loach's films or Mike Figgis's films, and that guy existed in your world. He was, you know, half an hour away or a couple of miles away. You know, there was a chance that you could actually, you know, when you said he was a role model, you, you could actually, you know, get something of value out of that. So we didn't really have those kind of figures, which is why possibly I tended towards, you know, the more trashy end of the market. I, I would go to the movies. I would see Top Gun. I would see Die Hard, and I would say, wow. I wonder, can you do that? I wasn't, I didn't really expose myself or rather it was hard to expose yourself to better movies until I was older, until I was 18, 19, 20. And you'd discover these little movie clubs, you know, there'd be one in the French embassy, whatever it would show French language films, but you had to go and look for it, which was good because it, it made, it made, it made, it made you grow some muscle. You know, if come, if things come too easy to you, they're not going to be effective on you as references. You know, lots of people talking about Disney Plus taking out five, ten-year leases, Netflix taking out five, ten-year leases, and all these studios. And thank God, I, I'm talking to some of the education uh, bigwigs here about this idea that we, we really have to start teaching our kids uh, to talk in the language that they hear and see every day. I want filmmakers really understanding YouTube, Instagram, and, and, and other platforms. I don't want to be teaching so much aspirational uh, production techniques nowadays. I, I, you know, I still go into a film school and I see something that looks from a 1930s Hollywood set. You know, there's the camera over there, there's a clapperboard. Oh my God, they're shooting on film. They've got boom microphones. I mean, is that all really relevant to them now? Because what they're going to do after wasting, I mean, sorry, spending their money for three years in one of these film schools is they're not going to go into that production environment. They're going to be lucky if they're making tea in that production environment. So let's teach them a production, a set of tools and a production environment that they can put to use straight out of the box and get them onto these platforms using techniques that are relevant. My thanks to John Moore for taking the time to speak to us from Dublin in December 2020.